Okay, uh, several months here. We've been looking at and uh, studying uh, the wisdom of the preacher, the, the teacher, the pundit, um, who we've stated from the very beginning, the outset, was the third king of Israel, King Solomon. Uh, we've seen some of Solomon's uh, thoughts already and conclusions about life uh, as he stands uh, really at the end of his political and his military career, sort of at the end of his days, looking back over his life and all that is going on around him in the world um, and answering some pretty significant questions such as, can there be any real or lasting meaning in life, uh, considering the fact that uh, just the last time we were together, uh, we noticed in, in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, all go to the same place, all came from the dust and all return to the dust. And so one of the questions Solomon's simply answering in this book is, can there be any real and lasting meaning in life if dust is our destiny? I mean, if that's where we're headed, uh, is life meaningful or is life meaningless? Um, We've also seen Solomon uh, developing some some key foundational uh, spiritual truths uh, and explaining some realities of life. Uh, things that Solomon has, in some cases, uh, learned through personal experience uh, and, and others through personal observation, as we notice uh, a combined uh, seven usages in chapters 3 and 4 of the phrases, uh, then I looked or I have seen. And so it's just pa- initially, primarily in chapter 2, we, we noticed that Solomon was focusing a lot on his own personal experience, choices he made in his own life. As you get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, you see this phrase repeated again and again, uh, then I looked or, then I, or I have seen, or some of your translation says, I have observed. And so he's taking into consideration his own personal experience, but he's also taking into consideration just what's going on around him. I mean, the guy was a, was a, was a uh, significant uh, leader in the world uh, during his lifetime and had a lot of interaction with other uh, leaders, uh, saw and experienced a lot of things. And so being the wisest man who ever lived apart from Christ, he's just looking back on personal experience and he's taking all of, all of that data in from what's going on in, in the world around him and he's, and he's making some, some conclusions about that uh, and sort of laying down some of these very significant truths. Uh, one of those spiritual truths that Solomon develops is the fact that mankind searches for happiness and enduring substance, or as we said, lasting satisfaction. This is just a, a universal reality of life. People are looking for satisfaction. Uh, people are looking for something that, that, that lasts, that's, that has substance to it, and yet what they continually find and discover is that um, apart from God, there is no lasting satisfaction. And so Solomon presents mankind in in light of the uncertainties of life and the brevity of life uh, with an invitation to enjoy life as a gift from God. Uh, We might even say this, this this might stretch us a little bit to think about, but one, one, uh, one guy I was reading several weeks ago put it this way. He said, it's as if Solomon is calling us to live life without restraints, but to live life without regrets. So it's as if there's these sort of uh, simultaneous calls. One is to say, 
live life without restraints. And where that comes out is in all those invitations that Solomon gives to enjoy this, enjoy that, go after this. Man, have, it's as if he's saying, enjoy your life. <laughs> but we know that you can't just do that, right? There has to be something else factored into that equation. And the, and the other factor that balances that out is, that, that balances those things out is fear God. So enjoy life, but fear God. Don't ever enjoy life to the extent that you're not fearing God. And don't think that you're fearing God when you're not enjoying life. It's as if, in other words, you ought to be able to do both. I mean, you ought to be able to fear God, and, 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 and walking in the fear of the Lord is, is not a killjoy. If we're truly walking within the fear of God and we're obeying the Lord's word, that is where we find lasting satisfaction and joy. Uh, Solomon also develops uh, the idea that divine sovereignty and providence characterize human existence on planet Earth, which implies a number of things. It implies that we, we need to believe that God is the creator uh, with whom we cannot trifle, and he presents God as the creator uh, on, on several occasions. Uh, we have to accept that God's world cannot be changed to our liking. So if we admit that God is the creator and God is the one in control of all things, then by default we're sort of admitting that we, we don't have control <laughs> over these things and we can't change our circumstances in most cases to our liking because we're, we're, the reality is we're limited. We're very, very limited. Uh, we can't extrapolate the future on the basis of the present. So we can't, you know, we see these patterns in life and we, we even admit there is some monotony in the life that we live, right? We see these things over and over and over again and then we try to sort of play that out and predict what's going to happen because we go, well, I've seen this before, <laughs> And so we take that monotony and we sort of, we, 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 we put it into the future and we say, well, we, we know what's going to happen based on what has happened in the past, and yet the pattern keeps changing. And so it's as if we see this monotony, we see these patterns in life, but just when we think that we can extend that out and, and uh, figure out what's coming down the road, then we realize that there's, the pattern shifts just enough to keep us always on our toes and always trusting God. And we must believe, as we looked at last time, that God is the judge and will bring all wickedness into to judgment. So these are the kinds of things that, that Ecclesiastes teaches, uh, teaches us with, with certainty. Uh, but Ecclesiastes does not answer every question, right? So it's, it's one of these books that as we're reading, we get a lot of important uh, practical information about how we should live life, and yet at the same time, it's, it's one of those books that as we read it, we, we, it brings another question. <laughs> so we kind of get an answer, and then we have this additional sort of curiosity about life, and Ecclesiastes doesn't answer every curiosity that we have. Uh, in fact, Philip Ryken sums up Ecclesiastes this way. He says, quote, It is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we reach the end and get the answer, like a mystery. Instead, it is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life, and as we struggle, we learn to trust God and or, or learn to trust God with the questions, even when we do not have all of the answers. So Ecclesiastes doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does remind us of some very important things. It reminds us uh, that man is not sovereign. Um, that we are not in control of our destiny. It, te- it teaches us and reminds us that man is not inherently good. 
when you look at what's going on in the world around us and you, and you look back even on your own personal experience, that's, that's a pretty quick conclusion to come to. We're not inherently good. The people around us are not inherently good. And it certainly reminds us, uh, or on a regular basis even, we see this, that, our, that man is not immortal. Um, we talked about last time just the, this whole issue of death, um, uh, a, a subject that comes up more than once in Ecclesiastes. Just, it is the great equalizer. Um, so uh, we have these problems, the, problems the, the problems of uncertainty, the uncertainty of time and chance, the endemic and incurable nature of wickedness, the reality of death, all, all universal problems, problems that certainly can't, be, can't possibly be understood or resolved apart from the wisdom of God. And again, we see these things every day. I mean, we see wickedness. We see unpredictability, uncertainty, um, death, injustice, all, all of these things. So this morning we want to move on to, to chapter 4. And I'll just, uh, let me just read it for us and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in here. Ecclesiastes 4, he says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool, take, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor <clears throat> and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them. And even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. Now, as you, as you read this chapter, uh, there's one word that I think sort of comes to mind. Sort of, This is one of those chapters, and we'll have a couple of these times, you know, we'll come across this in Ecclesiastes, where you have... Um, what appears to be some, uh, a section that just seems to be disjointed. 
it, it reads almost like some of the, the later chapters in, in Proverbs, where every verse, it's like, okay, well, we're on to a different topic. <laughs> you know, this verse is about this topic, and then the very next verse seems to have no connection to the verse before it. Uh, this is one of those sections where as you read through it, you're sort of like, okay, what's the thread? <laughs> what's the connection between all these things? Because he's talking, it seems like he's talking about so many different subjects. And I think the word maybe that comes to mind or the, the word that may tie this together from, from a sort of a topical standpoint is the word loneliness. Loneliness. Uh, I think it becomes uh, particularly clear when you look at the, if you were to look at this in the, in the original text, you would notice the term for the numeral one, the number one, used seven different times. Uh, you'd see it in verse 8, you'd see it in verse 9, verse 10. In fact, it's used twice in verse 10, uh, once in verse 11 and once in verse 12. And then sort of in contrast to that, you have this term for the numeral 2 used eight times. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, uh, it's, it's actually the number 2, but it's translated as in, in verse 3 as both. So in the New American Standard, it says, but better off than both of them is the one. You could literally translate that, but better off than the two is the one. So you have just the number two there in, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew. Uh, even in verse 8, uh, it's the term, you translate second, um, but in the New American Standard it's translated as dependent. In verse 10, it's translated as another. So it's not as obvious when you're, when you're sort of reading it in your translation because it doesn't sort of consistently translate it as the number two or as the term second. So you don't pick up on it as much, but if you were reading it in the Hebrew, you would see that. You would see one, two, one, two, first, second, first, second, one, two, first, second, one, two. So it's this contrast between uh, the advantages, if you will, in some of these examples of having two or more versus being solitary, being, being alone. And so it's really, I think, that the whole section really speaks about this issue of loneliness, which is certainly another reality of life outside of the garden and this side of heaven. So again, if you step back and say, okay, these are, just, these are themes of life. I mean, again, this is Solomon looking back on personal experience and then looking at the world around him, and he's describing the world. He's describing life for the average person. And, and loneliness is certainly one of those uh, markers or characteristics that I think every single person here would say, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I've, had, I've experienced that at some point in life. And some would say, I experienced that in lots of ways in, in life. And as we'll see, even Solomon, it's not just observation, but it's a personal experience, I think, for him. Because Listen, if you, if you talk to people that are in positions of high leadership, high rank, like, like Solomon was, those are lonely places, right? I mean, Solomon partied, right? Solomon had supposedly lots of friends and lots of influence, and yet I think he could speak to this from personal, personal uh, example, his own personal life. So loneliness is a common-to-man experience. I think we could all agree to that. Uh, Thomas Wolfe, uh, as author from the 20th century, early 20th century, said this, quote, The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and few other solitary men, is 
the central and inevitable fact of human ex- existence. <laughs> so in his mind, this is it. This is the core. I mean, this is the most, one of the most common experiences that we deal with in life is this issue of loneliness. Uh, well, we've got to throw in Woody Allen because he always has so much to say. Not very, uh, I mean, what he says, is it's, it's, in, it's interesting. Um, don't live your life by it. But uh, he, you can always find a Woody Allen quote. Uh, in fact, we, I think we even had one the last time together. But he says, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering. And it's all over much too soon. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, said this, the more you stay in this kind of job, the more you realize that a public figure, a major public figure, is a lonely man. And again, that, that just, you know, that, that just agrees with what Solomon is saying here. Le- leaders are certainly not exempt from these things. Uh, you think about how the Apostle Paul described the human condition. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he's describing the Gentiles in that section, and he says the Gentiles were, and he, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. So he actually couples the sense of loneliness without God and uh, we would say hopelessness. And these two things, uh, again, go, we see these things go hand in hand in, 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 in many, many different situations. So this describes our world. Uh, the sense of despair that people feel, uh, the disturbance, the, the restlessness that people struggle with in their lives, uh, the disengagement uh, with their friends and their neighbors, the, the sense of, of discontinuity uh, that they experience. Uh, we'll talk about this toward the end of, of chapter 4, just this, you know, the king comes to power and then somebody comes up and replaces him. Uh, from sort of at, out of an unusual place, and then all the people come around that new king, right? And they celebrate that new king because this is a wise king. It's not like that old old king. That old king we had, man, he was so he didn't listen to people. He didn't take advice. He didn't listen to his counselors. We like this upcoming king. This is a wise king. And then it, the text tells us, but guess what? It won't be long. And what are they going to think about that guy? <laughs> They'll want to replace him, right? So all of these things, this. This disengagement, this discontinuity, this vexation with, with these things in our lives, uh, these things are all a part of, a, of the human experience. This is, this is true of, of all of us, regardless of the busyness, regardless of the physical comforts, regardless of the laughter and the relationships that, that we have. Uh, this, this is what life is like for those under the sun. So again, we're not talking about I mean, certainly we, we have all experienced these things. But again, Solomon's not necessarily here telling us this is the life of a believer, right? He's, he's giving us that sort of, this is, this is life. <laughs> this is life outside of the Garden of Eden. This is, this is the world that we live in. Uh, we'll talk about how we should be responding to these things as, as believers. But at this point, Solomon is just, he's just making these observations. Again, he's saying that I looked and I saw this. I looked and I saw this, and this is what I see. So these, these verses, in these verses, Solomon describes this life of loneliness that men and women experience. And we could say that from maybe four different angles, Solomon paints a portrait of all of these lonely people who go about their days having no hope and without God. 
to, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. Uh, people facing all sorts of problems at work, uh, in their relationships, in, in, in leadership, r- really in every, every realm of life. So I want to look at these sort of four different, I guess, uh, angles or four portraits that, that uh, uh, Solomon paints for us to emphasize this, this issue of, of loneliness. First, he talks about in the first three verses of chapter 4 about life under the sun with no comfort. Life under the sun with no comfort or even we say no, no comforter. Um, we've already spent some time thinking about this issue of injustice. We uh, did that uh, in, back in, in chapter 3. Uh, Daniel Webster once called justice, quote, the ligament which holds civilized human beings and nations together. <laughs> it's the ligament that holds individuals and nations together. And so Solomon is basically saying he's looking out and he's observing in his day that there's extensive ligament damage, okay? I mean, this, this is not happening. There, there, there is injustice everywhere, and as a consequence of that, lives and nations are coming apart, okay? So, so having introduced this topic of injustice in general, which, again, we looked, uh, we looked at beginning back in chapter 3, verse 16, Solomon now turns to a, a specific form of in, injustice, namely oppression. Oppression. In fact, he, he, he uses this, this particular term, oppression, in verse 1. Uh, it, it's the idea of extortion, um, or, or taking advantage of someone, uh, particularly a person that, that is poor. And so it's used in a majority of contexts in the Old Testament, it's used to describe those who, who are in, impoverished, who are in a financial situation where they can be easily taken advantage of. And he says here in verse 1, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So this is what Solomon witnesses. It's just like he, he puts these, these, it's like he makes two columns. And he says, here's, here's what we have. We have the oppressors, and we have those who are oppressed. And on the side of the oppressed, here's what we find. Tears and no comfort. That's in their column. And then on the column, the, 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 the side of the oppressors, he said in their column is power, <laughs> which is uh, power we're assuming without accountability. So this is, this is I mean, it's, power in and of itself isn't wrong, but when you have power with, without accountability or you have power without righteousness, that always leads to suffering. And so that's sort of the scenario that, that Solomon is is witnessing. He's seeing those oppressors as men or women who have a certain amount of power but who are not being held accountable for the authority and the power that they have and certainly have no desire to live righteous lives to please the Lord. And so the, the natural result is they take advantage. They, they, ex, they extort. Um, they take advantage of those who are, who are weak. Uh, of course, again, we, we hear that, and I mean, we don't have to think very hard to, to, to imagine in our own context a situation like that. I mean, I mean, how long do you have to think to come up with an example of someone taking advantage of another person? You know, of someone in power 
taking advantage of someone that is, um, you know, helpless, that cannot, cannot defend themselves. Um, whether it's due to, to race or ethnicity or religious beliefs, we, we see this kind of oppression um, in our world today. We've given examples last time. I threw out some examples of things we've seen just in the last century. The, of course, the, the Nazi reg- regime in Germany, uh, the killing fields of Cambodia, uh, former Yugoslavia and what went on there. Um, but again, we can even bring that up to our own, our, our modern day, our, our own experience, the things that we've seen in our own lifetime, even in, even in recent years. I and mean, we can just throw out abortion in and of itself uh, as an example of this kind of, of, uh, of oppression and taking advantage of those who are, who are weak and helpless. So, so Solomon witnessed these kinds of tragedies oppression and exploitation, pain and sorrow in the lives of innocent people, um, and a lack of concern on the part of those who could have brought comfort. <laughs> so it's not just the fact that people are being taken advantage of, it's that there's, it seems in the world around us, a, a lack of compassion and, and an unwillingness to bring the comfort that, that those people Uh, need. So it's an interesting reaction. Solomon brings up this issue of oppression and then using a little bit of an, we might say an overstatement. I mean, it kind of strikes you a little strange when he goes to verse two, right? And says, so I congratulated the dead, right? I mean, the word is, the word for congratulate is praise. So I lauded, I, I praised the dead. I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. So Solomon congratulates the dead for being better off than the oppressed who can't enjoy their life under the sun. You could just say this way, you're better off dead. (laughs) That's what you feel when you read that verse. It's like Solomon saying, you're better off dead. You're better off dead than to be living under this kind of oppression with no comfort. And no comforter. Uh, then he says, another, you sort of, you know, makes you, kind of sets you back a little bit. He says, you're better to have never been born. Right? Verse 3, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So Sol- Solomon says, essentially, earthly life can be so disheartening at times as to make non-existence preferable than the feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that those who are being oppressed experience, those who have no one to comfort them. Now, that sounds pretty cynical. (laughs) It sounds like Solomon has a a fairly uh, cynical attitude in regard to the preference of of death or non-existence to experiencing oppression. But again, Solomon's talking about life without God. I mean, that's what he's really describing here. He's talking about life, think about it, life with no hope of heaven. <laughs> now, as a Christian, I've been a Christian now since I was 16, you know. Uh, it's hard for me to remember what, <laughs> what I thought when I was 12 and 14. I mean, I've been a Christian now for so many years. I mean, you think about eternity and you think about the Lord and I, it's hard to remember being in that condition where there was no hope, right? 
and, and, and the Lord was not in your life. And there was no future. And you could see the realities of life playing out around you. You could see the injustice. You could see the oppression. You could see death coming. You could see all those things. And then you just, you just think, like Solomon mentioned back in chapter 3, what's the difference between the beast and the man? I mean, they both go to the grave. <laughs> I mean, if you, don't, if you don't have a biblical, biblical worldview, if you don't have biblical worldview glasses to put on and you're just seeing what's going on around you, that's kind of what Solomon's getting at here. Is he's just saying, listen, if that's all you've got, Man, you'd be better off to have not even been born. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking as someone that doesn't know the Lord, though, you know, you look at the, I mean, not to open up the... Open it up. Open it up, Matt. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, no, and we... Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. There is a there is a, a there is a sense of exaggeration in what he's saying. I mean, Job made this statement, right? So, you know, it's it's sort of a, is it is it the, a more of a subjective thing? You know, is it one of those things that you say sort of from a subjective standpoint, or are you really trying to create a doctrine here out of this? You know, you see what I'm saying? Is he is he saying this because because we have to keep bringing our back bring ourselves back to the fact that this is in, in poetic literature. And so there are things that we say sometimes like that, you know, like, you're killing me, Matt. You're killing me, right. you know. Well, you are true, actually killing me, Matt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, we say these things. And so, and we know that obviously Solomon believed there, there was a difference between the death of your cat, which, by the way, did you hear about the lady throwing the cats out the window? Okay. This, this, it was arrested, I think, yesterday going down the road with kittens, throwing kittens out the window. Yeah. So, anyway, I don't like cats, but, I mean, I was just thinking about the wickedness of men. <laughs> and she just, she, she had a bunch of cats, and she had one, that they had a litter, and she just was upset that that cat had so many kittens, and so rather than take them and drop them off somewhere or take them away, she just going down the road, and, and I think one of them actually, somebody reported, because there were cars and I had heard that a police officer was behind her and that one of them hit the hood of the police officer. I mean, he was behind her when she threw one of them out. And she said her, I think her excuse was just, well, they, they weren't my kittens. You know, of course, sort of. Anyway, get off the subject. But there's a difference between animals and men. And we know that because Solomon goes on to the, at the end of the book and explicitly talks about eternity and standing before God and this future accounting. Um, He's already said that God has put it within eternity in man's heart. Back in chapter three, chapter three, we talked about that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's not. He does believe in those things, um, but I think he's just saying, you take all of that, and if a person goes through life, and that's all, you know, uh, it would have been better for them not to have even been born, because they're if they're going to live through that existence, and if they never turn to God, what's coming? What's coming? I mean, uh, I mentioned this, I think, a, a few weeks ago as well. But if, if, you're a, if you're an unbeliever, this is as good, good as it gets. If you're a Christian, this is as bad as it gets. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean the, the, the best is yet to come for the believer. But for the unbeliever, this is it. So the, 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 the futility of their temporal relationships and, and the money that they make and the things that they do for enjoyment, it, it's just... It's fleeting, and, 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 they have, and they're, not, they're not acknowledging 
what's coming and, and preparing themselves for eternity. Did you want to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I think it would be important to set it for depravity. Yeah. It, it, that's the, that, that is. That's kind of what it is. It's, he's just painting this picture of how bad, <laughs> how bleak things are. And again, he's, I think all of them, when we get to the end of the chapter and we, and we look at all these examples, you'll see this, this common theme of, of loneliness. Because in this particular case, he's saying there are people that are being oppressed and there's no one to defend them. Now, he's going to go on and talk about other forms of, of isolation, but that's just one of them. That's just one of them. Um, so you just have to keep that in mind. Solomon's talking about life without God, life without heaven, life without a biblical worldview. Um, in fact, one, one commentator says this about this, about this verse, he's, these two verses, in particular verses 2 and 3. He says, So long as the central point of man's existence lies in the present life, and this is not viewed as the forecourt of eternity. In other words, the thing that precedes eternity. There is no enduring consolation to lift us above the miseries of this present world. <laughs> there is no consolation. <laughs> I mean, if this is all we have and we don't see that this life is the precursor to eternity, then there is really nothing to bring consolation to people, to lift us, as he says, above the miseries of this present world. So this is life under the sun, life with no comfort, life with no comforter. Then beginning in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 4, Solomon, Solomon describes life under the sun with no contentment. So we have life under the sun with no comfort. Verses 4 to 6, life under the sun with no contentment. Uh, here it's as if Solomon sort of shifts his, shifts his attention away from um, the, the halls of justice, or as he's described them as the halls of injustice, to the marketplace. So it's as if he's gone back, if we, if we kind of go back into the end part of the, the latter part of chapter 3, it's as if he's viewing a courtroom and he's observing the injustice that's there. Um, he's seen the oppression of the weak and now he kind of goes from that realm, if you will, of life, he kind of turns towards the marketplace to watch various people at their jobs or not. Uh, and surely he wouldn't be disappointed there. I mean, surely there's, he's, he's seen the oppression. Man, that's discouraging. All the loneliness that's going on there. There's no comfort. There's no comforter. He said, I'm going to turn to the work world. Surely that won't be quite as depressing. After all, God is the one who gave man a job to do, right? Even before sin entered the world, God is the one that gave work. He invented work. Uh, honest toil is a gift from God. And it makes sense that Solomon first finds a man who's working hard. So he finds the hardworking man first. Of course, Solomon had, had extolled the virtue and value of hard work uh, in many places in the book of Proverbs. And so Ecclesia, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, in this section, it says if Solomon looks at the marketplace, he finds a man, a busy man, uh, a man that is skillful in his work, a man who is, is competent in all that he does on the job, mastering the techniques of his trade. So we, look, we know a lot about this, this man's work, his hands, his, he has diligent hands. But the, here's the question, what about this man's heart? So he finds this diligent worker, but the question is, why does this man work so hard to perform and to perfect his skills? Because Solomon clearly, again, he's, he's a proponent of, of hard work and diligence. But why does this particular person that he's seeing, so he's, again, he's observing these things, 
why is it that, what's the concern and, and, and what motivates? Why is this guy working so hard to do what he does? And the answer is to compete with others. <laughs> to compete with others and to make more money than his neighbors. That's basically what he says, right? Verse 4, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after win. So this, this is what happens. The lack of satisfaction with life leads some people to conclude that everybody else has it better. And so you're, you're going through life, but because your hope isn't in God and you're looking for, the, for your life to bring some sort of satisfaction it was never intended to provide, then you become discontent and you begin to look right at what everybody else has and everybody else's circumstances and situation and you somehow find a way to come to the conclusion that everybody else has it better than you. And so rather than contentment, there's envy. Uh, there's envy, this, this desire to, to, to outshine others, uh, to get ahead, e- even if it means stepping on others uh, in our climb to, to the top, coveting what others have, uh, n- not only wanting to have those things, but wanting to go beyond and have even more than what other people have, and also to gain the intangible things that come with having those things, right? Um, Ray Stedman, this is his little book, uh, Is This All There Is to Life? Uh, this is just sort of a, a short, short sort of a commentary on uh, Ecclesiastes, but this is what he says. He says, how, how accurately this records what actually happens. People really do not want things. They want to be admired for the things they have. What they want is not the new car itself, but to hear their neighbors say, how lucky you are to have such a beautiful car. That is what people want, to be the center, the focus of attention. And then he goes on, he says he, he had found this, this is, uh, he had clipped out an article from Newsweek magazine on life in Washington, D.C., and this is what the reporter says drives people in the nation's capital. Quote, ambition is the raving and insatiable beast that most often demands to be fed in this town. The setting is less likely to be some posh restaurant or glitzy nightclub than a wholly unremarkable glass office building or an inner sanctum somewhere in the federal complex. The reward in the the transaction is frequently not currency at all, but power, uh, ego, he calls it an ego massage. For this, the whole agglomeration of psychological payoffs There are people who will sell out almost anything, including their self-respect, if any, and the well-being of thousands of others. So he's just saying, it doesn't always come in the form of currency. I mean, a lot of these things, the things are just tools. (laughs) We get the things, but with those things, we know there are other things that we desire. We want the reputation. We want the prestige. We want the accolades, uh, all, all of that. So covetousness, competition, and envy often go together. And envy is, is understandable, right? I mean, if things in this life are the goal of one's life and labor, I mean, keeping up with the, with the Joneses. Do we have any Joneses in here? Okay, no Joneses in here. I was, we used to have a Jones family in our church. You couldn't, you couldn't say that. Uh, an inability, I mean, this comes out in, in so many ways, an inability to rejoice in the success of others. But what Solomon says here, 
is that envy is an insufficient motivation and will certainly not bring lasting satisfaction. So he, he looks at this diligent guy, he looks at this uh, industrious guy, and he talks about the futility of that and the lack of contentment that's there. And so the question is then what do we do? Okay, we know that's bad. We know that's a dead-end street to go down that road. And so we have this tendency, and this is what people do sometimes. It's amazing. They get caught in this sort of rat race of life and this competition and this rivalry. And at some point, they get, some people just get sick and tired of it, right? And so what do they decide to do? They just bail, right? It's like they go from the rat race to being on government support. You know, it, it's like they kind of just wash their hands of the whole thing, and they go from this extreme way over here to this other extreme of we would call it idleness. So they go from idolatry of their work to idleness in their work. And so on one side, we have this envy, but on the opposite extreme, we have poverty that comes from laziness. So it's like, again, Solomon is just saying, just, just, just keep looking. It's everywhere. Because if you think about this, think about if you're, if you're looking at it through the lens of loneliness, you see the guy that's, that, that's competitive and it's stepping over people to get what he wants. Where does that guy end up? Lonely, right? I mean, he's burned all of his bridges. What about the guy, though, that decides he's not going to be like that guy? He's just going to sit around and fold his hands and take advantage of everybody else doing everything for him, right? So I'm not going to work. I'm just going to sit back, and I'm just going to let everybody else work, and then I'm just going to mooch off of them. Where does that guy end up? Lonely. Those people don't have lasting relationships. So on one side, we have too much ambition and too little rest, a person that is greedy and grasping and materialistic. On the other side, we have too little ambition and too much rest, and a person that is lazy, slothful, and apathetic. So Solomon goes from observing an industrious man to an idle man, which had to be painful for him to to, to watch. Because he had he, Solomon just, as you read the Proverbs, he has no sympathy for laziness. So it had to have been difficult for him to see this. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. That's what happens. He folds his hands, which is just a depiction of the slumber of the lazy person. It's just sort of this kind of doing like this, sitting back. But in the end, he consumes his own flesh, which is, a, it's, think about it, it's a word picture of self-cannibalization. <laughs> self self cannibalism, or basically self-destruction. That's what laziness and slothfulness ultimately leads to. It's, it's self-destructive, which is e- equally, again, this, this idleness is equally useless. Not only consuming all that he has, this person who's idle and lazy, but what he is, right? I mean, his very life. He sits idle his self-control wastes away. His capacity to care for others dissipates. I mean, because people that are like that don't care about other people. I mean, it's not like they're taking all their free time and going and serving people, right? Because people that tend to do that tend to become ingrown, right? Losing all self-respect. So, so the industrious man was motivated by competition, got caught up in the rat race of life, had no leisure time. The idle man was motivated by pleasure, but was headed for ruin. He had no productive time. And again, we see this in our, in our cult- culture today. 
I mean, it, the, the, the most immediate thing I think of is just a father and a, and, a, and a teenage son. I mean, a typical father and a typical teenage son. The father is the one in verse 4 idolizing his work and all that comes with it. And the teenage son is the one in verse 5 sitting idle. Again, I'm saying you see those extremes sometimes within the same family unit, right? And both will face anxiety. Both of them will face anxiety. It'll either be the anxiousness of the greedy grasp or the anxiousness of the where's it coming from quest. The person that's lazy, but they don't know where it's coming from. Both of them are going to face anxiety. The question is, what is the solution? What is the solution? And he he gives us uh, a hint about that beginning in verse 6. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. And that's where we'll pick up. So next time we'll talk about sort of his, uh, some, gives us some good counsel on how do you strike a balance between idolatry and idleness in your work. But again, he'll, he'll move on beyond that. It, it won't just be the uh, life under the sun uh, without comfort or a comforter or without contentment or rest, but he'll go on to talk about life under the sun without companionship and life under the sun without continuity towards the end of the chapter. We'll finish up chapter four next time. Okay? All right, folks, thank you for your time.